It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, Benjamin from The Nature Podcast here. We're very close to the end of 2022. And as we always do at this time of year, we're going to take a look back at some of the stories we covered in the podcast over the past 12 months. In this special clip show, members of the team will be picking out something they made in 2022 and telling us why it stood out to them. We've got a bunch of stories lined up, including how scientists uncovered evidence of the world's oldest surgery, a birthday celebration for the Higgs boson, and the potential origin of the Black Death. Before them, though, Sharmini Bundell is up with her choice. This year, I've picked a piece that I made both a podcast segment and a film on. And I had a good time getting various colleagues to test things out and lend their voices to it. So listen out for that. And it's about creativity over video calls. And it was actually being researched before the pandemic. And then it was published this year, which obviously suddenly seemed very relevant to, you know, the way we're living our lives now. And it's actually quite easy to sort of maybe read the sort of top summary or a headline of this and say, aha, it says that everyone needs to stop working from home and go back to the office immediately. It's much better for our creativity. But the actual research is a bit more nuanced than that. It's actually a really interesting piece of research. So here it is. From our 27th of April show, here's Sharmini's pick of 2022. Hiya. Can you hear me all right? Video calls. Over the last two years, I've seen a lot of people's faces more often on my laptop than I have in real life, which has its pros and cons. So I can't quite hear you um, for our episode. Oh, oh, no. Sorry, you cut out there for a sec. You, what was that last bit again? Okay, so he's just texted me and said he's lost all his internet, like even his phone. He's still there. This does not bode well. <laughs> Video calls can be frustrating, yet they also allow more people than ever before to work from home. But say you've fixed all the technical issues, you've got great internet, and you need a one-on-one meeting with your boss to brainstorm ideas for a new project. Which is better, getting together face-to-face or jumping on a virtual call? A new paper in Nature this week is starting to provide some data on what difference it might actually make. When the pandemic hit, I had so many people reaching out to me asking about like how to run Zoom studies and what's the research out there. This is Melanie Brooks, a researcher with an interest in creativity and innovation. Melanie wanted to directly compare in-person and virtual conversations. This work looks at what we are now calling the new normal, which is virtual interaction and how that might affect innovation. To test this idea, Melanie set up an experiment involving pairs of people given a creative challenge. Participants would either go into the same physical space, which was just an empty lab room, or we would split them into two separate lab rooms and have them communicate uh, with video technology. Participants were asked to come up with creative uses for particular everyday objects, as many ideas as they could in five minutes. The results showed that the in-person pairs generated more ideas. We were really interested when we saw the results that simply being in the same physical space as someone else improves idea generation. So in-person groups are generating around 16 or 17 ideas, whereas the virtual condition is generating between 13 and 15. 
But is this really that surprising? When we first started talking about this research idea to different people, a lot of people mentioned, yeah, Zoom's just a worse version. Of course, people are just bad at Zoom. Like, everything is going to be worse at Zoom. So maybe this has nothing to do with creativity. Melanie tested this with a second task. And what we asked participants was to identify their most creative idea. The idea selection task uses very different skills from the brainstorming task. But what's interesting is video conferencing wasn't universally bad. When it came to idea selection, we found, if anything, the virtual condition was better. The virtual condition identified a higher quality idea than the in-person condition. Now, this is a smaller effect, so we can't say for certain that they're better, but they certainly aren't worse. So what is it that might make idea generation, and only idea generation, harder over a video call? We looked at how much participants felt they connected with the other through self-report. We looked at unconscious connection through mimicry. We looked at trust through a monetary game. We also looked at how much there were speaker switches to see if there was trouble with communication coordination. We looked at whether there was crosstalk where people were talking over each other for communication coordination. What we find is for the social connection, no difference between conditions. For the communication coordination, we did find slight differences, but it couldn't explain the effect. Even controlling for these differences, we still find that um, the virtual condition performs worse when it comes to idea generation. But there was one difference between virtual and in-person conversations that did seem to make a difference. And Melanie spotted it by tracking people's gaze. Are you looking at your partner? Are you looking at the surrounding environment? Or are you looking at the task? And it's interesting, again, if you ask people what their intuition is, they think that there's more social connection when we're in person. And so we probably engage with our partner more. Um, But we found the exact opposite. So we found that in the virtual condition, people are looking significantly more at their partner, almost double. And because of that, it's at the expense of their broader environment. Previous research has shown that people are more creative when they're less focused. And we realized there's a difference in the physical setup. Because when I'm communicating in person, I have the entire environment as our shared environment. Wherever I look, that is going to be part of my partner's environment too. However, when we're talking virtually, our shared environment is pretty limited to the screen. And so if I want to show engagement, if I want to be involved in this interaction, it makes more sense for me to limit myself to a screen. And we thought that this could lead to more focus we should hurt idea generation because we're actually the most creative when we're unfocused and free. So rather than online conversations being inherently always better or worse, it could be that we need to adjust how we talk based on what we want to achieve. I use this now all the time. I don't have evidence for this yet, but based on my theory, I always suggest turning off the camera during idea generation. So you can walk around, you can look around. The idea that virtual meetings could impact things like focus and idea generation is likely to be of great interest to people around the world. But it's not as simple as saying, right, let's get back to the office then. It's not like we have to be in person. It's not also that it doesn't matter whether or not we're in person. Melanie is keen to test her theories further, but there's a bit of a problem. All of this research has been halted because we can't collect in-person data um, without people wearing masks. And that, of course, completely changes the experience. So there's tons of different experiments I would love to run that I haven't been able to do because we can't run in-person studies right now. That was Melanie Brooks from Columbia Business School in the US, ending Sharmini's pick of 2022. For a link to the paper and Sharmini's video, head over to the show notes, where you'll also find links to all the other stories you'll hear in this year's Crip Show. Next up, Nick Petrich Howe is here with his choice. So the story I've picked this year is about the origin of the Black Death. And I found this a really cool story because I remember way back when, when I was in my undergrad, learning about the different theories of where the Black Death sort of originated from. And so this was a really interesting topic to cover to see how this 
idea of the origin of Black Death had shifted, how the theories had changed, how the science had really progressed. And also, I really like this as well because it was a big collaboration between a lot of different kinds of scientists. There were historians, there were geneticists, there were archaeologists, there were a bunch of people coming together to try and answer this sort of riddle of where the Black Death got its start. From our 15th of June show, here's Nick's pick of 2022. The Black Death was the most deadly outbreak of any disease in recorded history. Between 1347 and 1353, it devastated the populations of Eurasia and North Africa, and it's estimated that anywhere between 30 and 60% of the population of Europe was wiped out. The outbreak caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis was the first in a series of outbreaks of bubonic plague that would occur over the next 500 years. The whole period is known as the Second Plague Pandemic, marking the second time Yersinia pestis had swept across the medieval world. The Black Death in particular had enormous consequences on the history of the region, but one ongoing mystery has been, well, where did it come from? Historians have been searching for an answer to this question for a very long time. What's really important to note is that the victims of the Black Death themselves were not sure where it started. So it's actually it's a very, very long de- debate that goes all the way back to the Black Death itself. This is Phil Slavin, a historian of epidemic diseases and one of the authors of a new paper in Nature, which has used a host of historical records, archaeological artefacts and modern-day DNA sequencing to attempt to find the answer to this centuries-old riddle. To start off, though, Phil and his colleagues needed to know where to look. And with hundreds of years of debate on the issue, there's no shortage of ideas. To cut a very long story short, there are four main theories. There's one that suggests the Black Death originated somewhere in modern-day China, one that says around modern-day Turkey, another that suggests somewhere between the Black and Caspian Seas, and finally, one that says Central Asia is the most likely place. For their part, Phil and his colleagues were drawn to Central Asia, specifically to a place in northern Kyrgyzstan where there are some particularly intriguing tombstones, as Phil explains. And what I found there is that uh, there were two years when we have massive spike in the number of tombstones. So we have... 467 precisely dated tombstones. Now, about 25% of them are dated to those two years. In other words, we have a massive spike in the number of tombstones that were erected in those two years. And uh, some of those tombstones were more detailed than others. And some of those detailed tombstones actually specifically stated that uh, the cause of the death of those people was what, what is described as maltana in Syriac, meaning pestilence. This two-year spate of pestilence-associated mortality happened around seven to eight years before the Black Death. So it seemed like a good place to potentially find its origins. And that's where modern genetics were able to help. As Maria Spiru, paleogeneticist and one of the authors of New Paper, explains. So our first steps was to actually extract DNA from skeletons that were excavated from this cemetery. We got access to teeth. We actually drilled the interior part of the teeth. And one of the reasons why we always target this interior part of the teeth is because we think we have highest chances of detecting bloodborne infections. After extracting DNA, we were able to, to sequence this DNA and use computational techniques to see whether we can detect any pathogens that may have been the cause of the death for these individuals. Within the DNA extracted from the teeth, the team were able to detect Yersinia pestis, the bacteria that causes plague. So it seemed likely that these individuals were killed by plague. But it's one thing to say that these people died from plague, and another to say this is where the Black Death originated from. So Maria and her colleagues took this ancient DNA, assembled its genome, and then compared it to the other sequenced samples of Yersinia pestis. And when we did that, we actually found that the genome from Central Asia is directly ancestral to all genomes that had previously been published 
from the second plague pandemic period, including the Black Death period, from Europe. So this already told us that this was kind of a more primal or more ancestral form of the bacterium that we were dealing with. In other words, strong evidence that Central Asia was indeed the starting point for the Black Death. So I would like to think that this will really bring the centuries-old debate to the end. We finally managed to answer those two most pressing questions. When and where, approximately where, did the Black Death start? Whether this paper will fully close this centuries-old chapter on the Black Death origin story remains to be seen. But it will give scientists clues of where to look next and maybe to answer a question that continues to be pressing to this day. How and why do pandemics emerge? This actually gives us a precise time point that we can investigate in more detail in this part of the world to better understand how the pandemic began. So what were the, for example, environmental circumstances under which this began? And also, how was the bacterium transmitted from Central Asia all the way to Europe, so 3,000 kilometers in the next eight years before the Black Death began in 1346. That was Maria Spirou from the University of Tübingen in Germany, ending Nick's choice from 2022. You also heard from Phil Slavin from the University of Stirling in the UK. As always, the middle of the show is time for the research highlights, the majority of which were read by Dan Fox. Here he is with a couple of his standouts. This year, I've picked two favourite research highlights that might just resonate with people during the festive period. The first about how hippos recognise each other's honks and react aggressively to the honks of hippos they dislike, and the second about the long-term benefits to living as far from human civilization as possible. If you're a tree, that is. Hippos can recognise each other's honking voices. And if they hear a group of hippos they dislike, they react by aggressively spraying dung. Little is known about hippo communication, because in the wild, the animals are very difficult to tag and identify. To study how hippopods communicate, a group of researchers played recordings of hippo wheeze honk sounds for seven pods in the Maputo Special Reserve in Mozambique. They measured each group's response to the broadcast voices of hippos that were members of the same group, neighbours or strangers. The animals acknowledged the voices by making their own sounds and spraying dung, an aggressive response. But they were usually less aggressive when responding to the voices of other pods that lived on the same lake than when responding to strangers living on other lakes. The authors say that hippo communication should be taken into account when animals are relocated for conservation purposes. For example, biologists could prepare a settled pod for new neighbours by playing recordings of the incoming animals' voices. Read that research in full in Current Biology. For trees, the secret to long life is simple. Live as far away from humans as possible. Researchers mined a database for information about the age and location of nearly 200,000 trees. At about 4,900 years old, two bristlecone pines in the mountains of southwest United States are the world's oldest trees, followed by a 3,600-year-old Patagonian cypress in Chile. The team counted 30 trees older than 2,000 years, and found that 27 of them are located on high mountains, probably because human activity is limited in these remote regions. The analysis also revealed that of the 95 studied tree species represented by individuals at least 500 years old, about 70% are endangered by human over-exploitation of natural resources. Warming temperatures also threaten the survival of extremely old trees, leading the authors to call for new conservation strategies. Read that research in full in Conservation Biology. Dan Fox there with his research highlight highlights. Next up, it's Lizzie Gibney with her pick of 2022. My pick for this year is a bit unusual in that it's a chat between Nature Journal editor Federico Levy and me on all things Higgs. 
And the Higgs, of course, is the Higgs boson, a tiny but very famous particle that forms a crucial part of the standard model. That's physicists' best description of particles and forces. And our excuse for nerding out was that this summer marked 10 years since the Higgs was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. I wish I could say there was cocoa and a fireside. We actually just recorded this in an office booth at Nature HQ. But it was a great opportunity to speak a bit more personally about our reflections and just delve into why, far from being done and dusted because it's discovered, the Higgs might still be the most exciting thing happening in physics today. It was a long chat, so you'll just hear a section of it here, but I hope you get a feel for how much we enjoyed ourselves. From our 6th of July show, here's the abridged version of Lizzie and Federico chatting all things Higgs boson. Fede, can you remember where you were, what you were doing when the Higgs was discovered? I definitely do, yeah. I was still doing my PhD, actually. We crowded the main room of the physics department to look at the broadcast in real time because people knew that something was in the air. And we were all there. And it was amazing. I heard people camped outside the lecture theatre at CERN like from the night before to be able to actually fit into that room. That must have been incredibly exciting to be there on site. I wasn't in Geneva, but the buzz was, was palpable. And everybody was texting one another going like, this is it's incredible. So it was quite a momentous moment. Yeah, I was a reporter at the time, but not here in Nature. And I was writing for a publication that was more about policy rather than like research itself. But I remember I was actually at a scientific event at the Royal Society in London. And there was so much buzz that evening. And because I had actually worked previously at CERN as a kind of staff writer, as an intern, I had lots of questions from my friends and family. So they were being pinged at me all the time. It was great. It was kind of the first moment really that particle physics felt like it had broken through in that way. It was a subject for people on the street to talk about. But I do remember as well that when they made the announcement, I just said now it was a discovery, but they were quite cautious at first, weren't they? They said we found a Higgs-like particle or something like that they didn't say we've definitely got the Higgs boson why were they so cautious as you know well physicists tend to be quite cautious right and I think that deep inside their hearts many people felt differently than what they actually said but the evidence that was presented on that day was the presence of a particle with a certain mass and you know it was a particle that was definitely off the chart it was not corresponding to any particles that we knew already it was a new particle exactly with a mass that was exactly in the range that people expected the Higgs boson to be and so people were like that seems to be the thing we're looking for but clearly you know there is so much more to characterize about this and definitely people have been busy since yeah so maybe we should tackle a bit of what it actually is (laughs) because we've you know heard about how grand a discovery it was but why was it so important to find the Higgs Well, first of all, you know, I wasn't around back when other particles conjectured by the standard model had been detected. And I could imagine that the excitement was similar. But in a way, the Higgs is so fundamental that it has almost a different status. It was sort of like something that had to be there for everything else that we've seen to make sense. It was really sort of the keystone that holds together a big mathematical construction that is the theory of the standard model. And so it's amazing that that particular thing, which, you know, comes from a very sort of human idea, which is the maths behind it, actually exists. To me, it's mind-blowing, right? And I think that many people felt that way. I mean, people might have heard of a boson being something like a photon, but photons don't have mass, and that's the electromagnetic force. And then we've got the, the weak nuclear force, which has bosons which do have a mass. They're the W and Z bosons. And so if I'm right, this is what the Higgs mechanism was doing, was giving some maths that would explain those two phenomena, how they could both equally fit in the standard model. Yeah, that's exactly it. Basically how these two different forces could be different representations of a bigger structure, despite them being so different from a physical perspective. for that, we need the Higgs field, which is this idea that Peter Higgs, but also a whole alphabet of other (laughs) physicists helped to discover and to theorise. So this field exists that gives other particles mass. And the boson, then, how does that relate? The boson isn't what's giving the mass, right? It's the field. The boson is the excitation of the field. So in a way, if the field is there the way you see it is through the corresponding boson. Mm -hmm. So the Higgs boson is what you can use to actually sort of probe the field, which is, as you said, the fundamental entity that gives then masses to the rest. And the way then that it works is that the more a particle interacts with the field, the more mass it has. Is that the general idea? So when you have a really heavy particle, it's because it's reacting 
in a strong way with the field. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that like a mathematical perspective, what we call mass is effectively a drag that the particle feels through the Higgs field. That's a cool thing to mess with your brain, isn't it? I mean, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you said Peter Higgs came up with this idea 50, 60 years ago, a long time ago. And in terms of what we learned so far, I mean, the main thing is just how well it does fit with the standard model. It is fitting perfectly. And I think that that's yet again a moment that you almost want to pause and consider how incredible it is that something that was theorized 60 years ago, it's exactly being revealed in experiments. So our description of reality is perfectly matching what nature is throwing at us. Nobody said that this should happen. And so we're 10 years in. What did it mean for you in terms of papers and publishing? And how did it change physics in that way? It's an interesting question because at some level, you know, there is something about these huge discoveries that seem to change everything, but they don't really change that much in the end. Because if you browse particle physics journals or articles, you know, you will see articles that are very similar to the articles that used to be around just with the Higgs in it, right? And that's actually, you know, it's so deep, the difference, and yet so almost unnoticeable. Because basically, most of the research this year has been focused on understanding the Higgs interaction with particles. And so several results is, how can we measure this better? What have we measured so far? Here is an idea on how to increase the precision on measuring this interaction with that. Essentially, particle physics got down to it and like they really kind of get going applying the expertise accumulated over decades of work with other particles to the Higgs. So the discovery is kind of like a starting gun and then you're like, oh, actually, we have to pin down all its properties and all the Higgs interactions and figure out how all those results then fit with theory. But I assume there are still a lot more questions that physicists want answered. Absolutely. To start with, given that the Higgs interacts more with heavier particles, we have seen only the interaction with the heaviest particles, whereas the interaction between Higgs boson and the lighter particles, such as the one that actually make up the world, such as electrons, protons, or neutrons, it is much harder to realize this experimentally, and so this has not been really observed yet with enough statistics to make any estimates. So that's definitely something that the community would like to explore next. And this is clearly an effort to first of all, check whether, you know, the standard model, as annoyingly accurate as it's been so far, keeps being so annoyingly accurate, if you want. But also, the Higgs boson is one of the many possibilities that could be happening to explain what we've seen. So there are a number of conjectures that, you know, if you want to set the stage for beyond the standard model physics, that involve the Higgs boson in some way. There could be more Higgs bosons, or some conjectures are whether the Higgs boson is a composite particle, so whether it's made of something else. Oh, wow, so it's not fundamental. It's... You know, we, we have no idea. You know, there are basically theories for everything you can imagine, right? But, you know, then the experimental evidence needs to be accrued. So there is so much that we need to understand. And so how big a deal is the discovery of the Higgs? You know, if we look at, like, the history of physics, of science, how far up there is it? Because, of course, it's part of the standard model. There have been lots of different inputs to the standard model over the years, but it is also that last missing piece that was discovered. Um, Well, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me this question, but, you know, here I am. (laughs) Maybe personally, because that's the other thing is for you in your life, it probably has been a bigger deal than the discovery of relativity was because you weren't around. That is fair. That is accurate. No, I think it's basically up there, to be honest, because to an extent, this is the equivalent of one of those first early experiments that actually confirmed the theory of relativity. Because, you know, at some level, the standard model, the paper by Peter Higgs and all the other researchers of that time remain quite bound to the realm of physics literature until an experiment, bang on, realizes that these people were right. And this is something so fundamental about the workings of nature, similar to relativity in a way, that is really like, okay, this is how the world works. So these moments come very rarely in human history. So I would say that it's definitely up there. Don't ask me to put it before or after relativity, but I would say it's up there. (laughs) We were quite lucky to be around to see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's hope there's something else coming. (laughs) That's true. It might not be the end of the story. Federico Levy talking with Lizzie Gibney there in her pick of the year. Next up, Noah Baker's here with his choice. When Ben asked me to think about my content highlight in podcasts for this year, it had to be a Chronopod episode for me. This is something that we've been producing for years now, and we came to an end this year. 
And the episode that immediately came to mind was an episode that I made with Amy Maxman, who was one of the founding members of the Coronapod series. And it was actually the last episode of Coronapod that we published. And it was all based around a feature that she had written. The headline for the podcast was the somewhat sensational, the open science plan to unseat big pharma and tackle vaccine inequity. Now, the reason this came to my head straight away is because vaccine inequity has been one of the most fundamentally important issues, in my opinion, that we have had to tackle this year. The stark inequity as to who in the world got access to these vaccines and so therefore got access to the freedom and the ability to feel safe and comfortable that they provided was really highlighted. And this particular episode was looking at a collaboration between 15 countries, which was co-led by the WHO, to try to create better vaccine independence in the global south. Now, this is a very difficult thing to do. It was a plan to try to create vaccine manufacturing capacity, vaccine research capacity in countries that want to create their own vaccines rather than relying on producers and research from high-income countries around the world. Now, this is a big topic. It's an awful lot to discuss. It took us into a discussion of patent law. It took us into a discussion of global geopolitics and previous examples where things like this have been attempted within the pharmaceutical industry. Amy's reporting, as ever, is wonderful. And it's something that I look back on as something that I learned a lot about and I think is highlighting a really key issue in science. Here's an excerpt from our 29th of July episode of Coronapod, Noah's Pick of the Year. Hello and welcome to Coronapod. I'm Noah Baker and joining me this week, I honestly feel like we should have a drum roll because I'm pretty sure people are going to be excited, is reporter extraordinaire Amy Maxman. Amy, welcome back. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So we haven't spoken to you for a while on Coronapod and part of the reason for that is that you have been off all over the world reporting a humongous story. And it's a story that we've sort of previewed a bit on Coronapod. Back in February, we talked about a group, in particular one lab actually at that time in South Africa, that was copying the Moderna vaccine. And you have expanded significantly on that reporting to talk about a really radical approach to try to change the way the vaccine manufacturing works in the global south. Tell us, what have you been off doing? Yeah, so there are lots of groups who are trying to make next generation mRNA vaccines or manufacture other kinds of COVID vaccines. But what I really wanted to get at was something sort of deeper that goes beyond COVID vaccines. So what interested me in the company Afrogen that I had written about previously that was making this Moderna vaccine, I wanted to go see what they were up to. Because that project's pretty interesting because they're not just trying to make a COVID vaccine. They're trying to basically build up capacity to make all sorts of mRNA vaccines for all sorts of diseases in the global south. And they're doing that by working with companies in 15 different countries. So I wanted to go and see what that looks like. And I also was interested in this solution because I thought it would highlight what exactly is the problem here? What is standing in the way of expanding manufacturing for vaccines in other countries? So this is a really important mission. And it's something that the pandemic has really highlighted the kind of disparities that exist here. Where has your reporting been focused to start with? And then let's talk a little bit about the kind of details of what you've been digging into and what this new effort is trying to achieve. Yeah, so basically, I decided to go to South Africa, because that's where the core of this hub is based. To back up a minute, it wasn't just this one small biotech company called Afrogen in Cape Town in South Africa. It's part of this effort founded by the WHO, and it's the mRNA technology transfer hub. And the core of it is kind of this company Afrogen in, in Cape Town. But the entire hub initiative consists of 15 other companies in other countries in the global south. And while I was there, I think groups from Brazil and Argentina had just left. And I was there while a group from Indonesia was visiting to learn how Afrogen is making their mRNA vaccine candidate, the one that's based on what we know about Moderna's. But at the same time, they're trying to improve on that vaccine or moreover, also make that vaccine so that it would be producible in case Moderna decides to enforce patents. And so that effort 
includes all sorts of groups. Like I went to a few different universities in South Africa that are helping with this effort. And you also reported from Malawi as well. You know, part yes. of this process is to understand not just what efforts are being made, but the kind of human extent of the problem that exists that, that sort of necessitates this, this effort in the first place, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you go back, so around in, you know, in 2021, there were these huge problems, which I've talked on Coronapod about before, you know, when we were rolling out booster doses, there were, you know, all sorts of countries, low and middle income countries that had very few vaccines, you know, India, South Africa, Brazil, all of those countries, along with the lowest income countries had very few vaccines while the richest countries were rolling out third doses. But things sort of changed a little bit over the course of 2021. By late 2021, some of the middle income countries or upper middle income countries, you know, like South Africa, did increase their number of vaccines. It's still quite a lot lower. But still, when I decided I wanted to go report this story in April of 2022, the lowest income countries still had very few vaccines. So I wanted to see what was life like, where here we are two and a half years into the pandemic, and there's still countries, I think when I went to Malawi, it was at 5% vaccinated. DRC, South Sudan, those were all like somewhere around 1% vaccinated. So I just wanted to see what is life like there. And it's shocking that their pandemic is back where we were, you know, in December of 2020. And I think one of the things that's really struck me from reading your feature, which I would strongly encourage people to go and read as well as listening to this Chronopod episode, is your experiences in Malawi touch on why this issue goes vastly beyond just COVID, right? Some of the discussions and some of the people you saw there and some of the situations that you experienced show just why access to healthcare or access to locally created, produced, you know, managed healthcare systems is a problem that has existed for a long time. And it needs a bigger solution than just a kind of a COVID emergency response solution. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I went, I really didn't know what to expect. It's the kind of thing where when you're a reporter, I think people will tell you what a situation will be like. For example, people will say, oh, you know, COVID's not the big concern there. And then you never know what happens until you get there. So, you know, sort of what I found was, yes, COVID surged really terribly um, a couple of times in 2021 in Malawi, and it was devastating. But there were a host of other problems. You know, there was poor access to a whole bunch of different medicines and medical technologies and healthcare systems. You know, there were also the results of climate change were seen there. Crops were failed. People were hungry, which also makes people more susceptible to disease. And it makes, you know, diseases like HIV, people who had HIV were doing worse, nurses told me, because they didn't have food to take with their medicines. So all of these inequalities compound. And I don't think a right takeaway is, oh, COVID's not a big deal. The takeaway is inequality is ugly and the effects pile on top of each other. So COVID just sort of unmasked this sort of long-standing injustice that we also saw for HIV drugs and that we see for other medicines too. Absolutely. I mean, there's a quote in your story from one of your sources saying, we're dealing with four pandemics right now, plus climate change and food shortages, TB, COVID, uh, malaria, and HIV. I mean, this is an extreme situation, which just goes beyond what many people in the global north might be imagining when they're thinking about a pandemic. Yeah, and I think the reason why this part of it was important for my story, and I have to say it's so hard to like combine all of these things in a story, but the reason why it was important is because the changes that the story kind of calls for, like, you know, changing the patent system and changing the market, having some way to subsidize the cost of vaccines, I wanted to show, well, what what are the stakes here? Look at the cost. Look at the cost of doing things the way that we're doing it right now. Right, absolutely. Okay, so let's get into what those changes might need to be and what the Transfer Hub is trying to achieve. So to start off with, can you do a sentence for me of what the kind of ultimate goal of this project is? I mean, dream situation here. The goal is to have drug and vaccine, starting out with mRNA vaccines, vaccine manufacturing more dispersed throughout the global south. And this hub is looking at more middle income countries where there's already some infrastructure in place. And those countries would serve other countries in the region. So it's not that Malawi is now going to have a vaccine hub, but if South Africa did, that's very close. It was a two hour flight to Malawi. It's, they would serve other countries in the region. 
Right. And fundamentally here, this isn't a case of building a vaccine manufacturing plant in South Africa. This is a fundamentally collaborative project that's aiming to bring many stakeholders from across the global south in a kind of a coordinated way forward, right? Yes, yeah. So this is different than, say, you know, Moderna or BioNTech has announced building their own plants in other countries in the global south. This would be different because those plants would be owned by Big Pharma, which is based mainly in the West. And therefore, those companies get to dictate the distribution of the shots where they go, whereas the idea here is that these companies are managed by the countries where they belong. And that is really fundamental here to why this potentially could be a game changer and why you've described it as a radical move, you know, to disrupt Big Pharma in just the headline of your of your feature is to try to regain some power about how vaccines are created, which vaccines are created and which problems you're trying to solve, right? They can be more tailored towards the needs of the people in, in the areas where the vaccines are being created. Yeah, exactly. So they're starting with mRNA vaccines against covid because that's kind of a proof of concept, really. Surely, if you wanted to make mRNA vaccines against COVID as fast as possible, this isn't the fastest solution. This is a long-term solution. So the goal here is ultimately to make these mRNA vaccines, but then, you know, maybe make vaccines against measles or mRNA vaccines against dengue or other kind of viral diseases. Amy Maxman there. And as Noah said, there is absolutely loads in that episode of Coronapod, so it's well worth a listen to the entire thing. And look out for a link in the show notes to where you can find it. Finally, in this year's roundup, it's my pick of the year. As always, it's so difficult to pick one story out of the many things that I've made. But in the end, I've chosen a story about a group of researchers who uncovered evidence of the world's oldest surgery. Now, it's a podcast piece I enjoyed reporting because while everyone, including me, likes a this is the biggest, fastest, oldest, whatever type of story, which this is, it also tells us a bit about ourselves as human beings and how it's in our nature to try and take care of each other, which is an important message, especially at this time of year. From our 7th of September show, here's my pick of 2022. Think about surgery today, and you might picture a shiny operating theatre full of advanced technology and specialist medical staff. But the story of surgery goes back a long way. Before germ theory, before Hippocrates, even before the invention of metal tools. Until now, one of the earliest examples of a complex medical procedure was seen in the skeleton of a Neolithic farmer in France who had had part of their left arm amputated about 7,000 years ago. But this week, a paper in Nature suggests that surgery may be far older than we thought, after researchers found evidence of an amputation that occurred around 31,000 years ago. The story begins in a cave in the rainforest in the east of Indonesian Borneo. It's in a pretty remote location, and getting there is a bit of a trek, as Adi Agus Octaviana, a PhD student from Griffith University in Australia, one of the authors of the new paper, explains. If we go there from the airport, we need around six hours with car, and then three hours with a small boat to the base camp, and Next uh, three hours, small boat again, and then walking. Yeah, it's uh, like very remote area. A lot of cave there, around 100 to 300 meters from the valley surface. These caves high up in the valley are made of limestone, and they're famous for their examples of early human art, such as stencils of hands. In some of the caves, this art has been dated as being potentially 40,000 years old. The cave Adi and his colleagues were working in is called Liang Tebo. So in this cave, we have a lot of hand still there in the cave wall or in the ceiling. To learn more about the people who might have lived in this area around the time these artworks were made, the team set about excavating the Liang Tebo cave, looking for archaeological evidence of human habitation, things like stone artefacts and so on. And they found them, says Tim Maloney, another member of the team, also from Griffith University. But they also found something more. At a close to a metre down, we uncovered a very well-defined deliberate burial with stone burial markers and with brightly coloured red ochre or earth pigment grave goods. 
within that grave, the individual, they were likely in their early 20s when they died. The skeletal signatures of sex aren't quite distinct, so we can't say whether they were male or female. We can say they likely died around 31,000 years before present. Finds like this are exceptionally rare. But something else caught their attention as they uncovered the skeleton. During that process, it was quite clear that the lower left leg was completely absent and then the tibia and fibula had some really unusual bony growth. The opposite right leg, all 26 foot bones were perfectly articulate. And at the time, having answered through the excavation process, where is the left foot? Not here being the answer. The next question is, what happened? And that's a question that needs to be answered by a paleopathologist. Paleopathologists study diseases and injuries in long-dead human and animal remains. We were able to get a colleague to inspect and confirm our suspicions that that unusual bony growth is a very compelling match for clinical examples of amputation surgery. Tim says that this pattern of unusual bony growth is different from what might be seen if the foot had been lost as a result of something like an animal bite, say, suggesting that precise cutting, deliberate amputation, is the most likely explanation. And what's more, the fact that any extra growth was seen on the leg bones at all shows that the person must have survived having their foot removed. Based on clinical comparison, a minimum of six to nine years of healing has occurred, which means that between six to nine years prior to their death in their early 20s is when this occurred. So somewhere potentially in the order of 10 and 14, perhaps that age bracket is when they had the amputation surgery. We cannot say what caused an injury to encourage or require that procedure. However, it does imply that the people that conducted it clearly had mastered a range of complexities associated with it, but they were also aware of the importance of conducting it. Amputation is complex, and in addition to a detailed knowledge of anatomy, its success in modern times is largely thanks to antiseptics and antimicrobials that prevent deadly infection. But even though this surgery was performed thousands of years ago, the team found no evidence of infection at the amputation site. It's difficult to know why, but Tim thinks where the person lived may have played a key role. This is occurring not only in an area of this amazing rock art, but it's part of the Earth's tropics, which is also home to today and very likely when this individual lived, some of the highest biological diversity on planet Earth. The plant diversity harbours a great many botanical resources with antiseptic and antimicrobial properties, supports the case that the surgeons probably had a good grasp of botanical resources to support this successful surgery. Tim says his colleagues are looking at things like seeds and charcoal samples uncovered at the site to see what they might reveal about any plants used to prevent infection. They're also looking for evidence of what sort of tool might have been used to remove the foot. Charlotte Roberts, an archaeologist from Durham University in the UK, has written a News and Views article about the work. She suggests that the find might mean our presumptions about the origins of surgery might need a bit of a rethink. The thing that struck me most was evidence for surgery 31,000 years ago. Astounding, really. and. You know, to see it in a skeleton, an intentional burial, in a cave. I mean, it's really quite rare in my field to see direct evidence for treatment of disease or injury. It's so long ago that it challenges the view that medicine was really late in coming to societies. You know, everyone thinks it really developed when people started to farm and live in settled communities but this just challenges that idea we have, this assumption. Charlotte suggests that the fact that this surgery happened and that the person receiving it lived for several years afterwards provides some insights into the communities living in this area at the time. Whatever they were treating this person for with that amputation, they felt they needed to intervene. And it just really indicates 
that they were a caring society because they cared for that person during their life and they cared for them when they died and carefully buried this individual in a cave. And that, for me, just shows that care has been with us in our societies way back 31,000 years ago up to the present day. Quite what form this post-surgery care looked like is something that Charlotte is interested to know. There's another question too. Was this a one-off event or were practices like this common in this area? The absence of written records and scarcity of well-preserved skeletal remains makes this difficult to answer right now. Although lots of questions do remain, Addy, who you heard from at the start, says this find is important as it sheds new light on what life was like in ancient Borneo and who the people who made the paintings in the cave thousands of years ago may have been. The finding of a skeleton of 31,000 years ago is amazing because we, we can understand how prehistoric people are living, how they survive in the jungle of East Borneo. I think it's incredible for Indonesian archaeologists. We have the proof of the people who are living with the early art itself. Adi Agus Octaviana from Griffith University in Australia there, ending my pick of 2022. You also heard Tim Maloney, also from Griffith University, and Charlotte Roberts from Durham University in the UK. So there we have it, a few of our podcast highlights from 2022. As always, check out the show notes for links to all of them. And if you want even more stories like them, then head over to nature.com slash podcast, where you'll find all of our shows. That's it for us for this year, but we'll be back in 2023 with even more stories from the wide world of science. Until then, I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.